Hello, this is Culture Bites coming to you from the National News in Abu Dhabi and further away today. I'm Inas Rafai. And I'm Farah Andrews. So we've got loads on the agenda today for you. Halloween is coming next week, my favourite time of year. We are talking Britney Spears. We're going to be speaking to organisers of Palestinian Cinema Days in Abu Dhabi and taking a look at the events that have been cancelled and what's still on and how you can stay connected with arts and culture with our man about town. So this is my first Halloween in Abu Dhabi. It's very exciting. Um, All the houses in my um, neighbourhood actually have already started putting up their decorations. I know it's kind of like a bit of a controversial thing. Some people don't celebrate it. Some people do. I just see it as a bit of fun. Um, Yeah, that's... I think as well. It's like, it's just something, it's just something nice to enjoy, like a family event, right? It's nothing, nothing too deep. It's really not that deep. It's just about yeah. getting dressed up, <laughs> <laughs> eating lots and lots of candy. Um, actually, I don't know. Did you ever do like the kind of like traditional British games? Because we used to do like really random things like apple bobbing. I was gonna say, yeah, apple do- bobbing. We did apple bobbing. Does- um, I feel like my mum used to do something with like rolling apple and sweeties down a hill but we never did that but my mum spoke about that we used to do this game called cut the flower where you would have a big tower of flower with like a cherry or a a grape on top and then each person would kind of cut the flower so cut parts of the flower away and if the cherry or grape dropped from the top of the tower your face got smashed into the flower (laughs) (laughs) it's my favorite game let's play it (laughs) Let's play it when I get back. So So we're not just going to be talking about the fun of Halloween and all the different games. We're also talking about scary movies. Yeah, so that is obviously a big way of celebrating Halloween. I should say, I'm currently, very unexpectedly, this is why we're recording the way we are today. I'm in the US. So out of like a very last minute trip to the US for family things, I have ended up in, yeah, Northeast America in like the height of autumn, fall. So we've been going on quite long car journeys and it has been so beautiful. The like autumn leaves, everything is like red and orange. It's so pretty. That's my favourite time of of year. It's so nice. And we get that to a degree in England. We do not get that at all in the UAE. But I think like driving around and seeing that has kind of made me understand why it's such a popular season in this country and why it's become such a thing. I mean, you know, I like have to is- I have got an aversion to the cold weather. So even though I do love autumnal colours, I am very happy not to be in the cold. Oh, I'm basically in thermals and my partner's family are like in shorts and a t-shirt. I'm making a fool of myself. But it's um it's it is nice being here and kind of seeing all the like we were driving along and I asked if I was going to see a pumpkin patch and genuinely about a hundred meters down the road there was a pumpkin patch so they're everywhere it's a real thing <laughs> oh my goodness that's like living in a movie oh, I'm not going to do an American it accent like <laughs> talking of movies film. so movies. scary movies there's loads coming out of the region um and there's more that I want to see that have come out of the region. That I've kind of been banking for this season. Do you like scary? Like is a strong word. I don't think I like them. I think I tolerate them. I um I kind of like I think there's it's undeniable that scary films really do 
pick at things in society that otherwise don't get picked at. So for instance, like Get Out, I think it really looked at like race in America. And I think there's a lot of issues can sometimes come out in scary movies, um, which society as a whole is trying to deal with in some way. Um, So that's why I kind of, I'm always intrigued by them. Get Out is kind of my limit. I watched that because there was so much conversation about the kind of social commentary about that film. And I am a big fan of Daniel Kaluuya. So the um, I, I, I've seen that, but that's where I stop. I cannot watch anything scary. I do not do gore. I do not do atmospheric. I do not like any anything like a bit frightening at all. However, I do like true crime, which kind of is true crime contradictory. Is really, that's actually real. <laughs> Yeah, that's even worse. But I, yeah, I really, I like watch and read a lot of true crime, but just f- fake crime. No, it's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> I love the contradiction there. Like I do find, yeah. yeah, true crime. I did get into a few, as everybody did over lockdown, like those uh, true crime podcasts. And I was terrified. I had to like lock my door three times every night. But an actual horror film won't scare me in the same way. But I do relate everything in my life to a horror film. So if there's a window creaks, I'm like, oh my God, I've got a window. Is it creaking? <laughs> like everything that like moves or has some sort of like sound, I, it becomes really personal for me. Um, like, this could happen. This could happen. No, this is why I can't watch them. I don't. <laughs> well, I'm going to watch some. I am okay, going to watch some. So there's one, it was actually produced by in Abu Dhabi. Um, and it's a film from the <laughs> 2013. So it's a bit old now. But it's called Jin, and it's about a newlywed Emirati couple um, traumatised by the loss of their child, and they return home only to su- suspect it's haunted. Now, it's one of those, um, it kind of like touches on folklore and kind of religious beliefs in the region, which is about Jin spirits. You know about that. Yeah, so I remember this film coming out. This is one of, it's obviously not the first big Emirati film, there have been many before. But it is a film that kind of really sparked international conversation as well. When it first came out, it was huge. And then the kind of conversation around the gin and explaining the gin was really interesting, I thought, kind of around that film. Yeah, I mean... But I have not watched it, obviously. Because you're too scared. Well, I'm going to watch it. (laughs) I'm saving it for Halloween this year. But it's also done by a really famous director. Oh, amazing. What's the director's name? I didn't know. I can't remember. So Terry Pooper is the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, he is huge in the kind of like horror world. But he came to Abu Dhabi, obviously, and he did this film alongside um, the film the film industry in this country. And I think it's just kind of, it should be celebrated a bit more. We're coming to the season. And I really was like looking and hunting for something that felt authentic to where I am now. Because like you're saying, America pumpkin patches that's not going to scare me right now like i need something with a bit more like glossy marble (laughs) (laughs) there's also been so this is not a regional release but there's a new horror tv show that's come out on netflix called fall of the house of usher have you been reading about this i've seen it on my netflix but i haven't watched it so i i'm not joking even the trailer had me like "Mm -mm, this is not for me but it's based on a um, story by Edgar Allan Poe. So this is good 
good scary stock here. That is like like the original MVP of the horror genre. And so this it's been developed into a um Netflix series and I have it on good authority from people I've been talking to here who are very big Halloween fans. But that is a show to watch if you're a if you're a fan of the of the genre. <laughs> I yeah, I can't me. wait. I think especially like yeah, there's there's so much. There's so much around Halloween that I really enjoy. I say horror films, I have to wait until my kids are definitely asleep to watch any though, because I wouldn't want them to see anything really traumatic. Um, but also there's lots coming out in the cinemas. So if you are yeah. like a big fan of horror, um, we have in the cinemas, we have Saw is back. I mean, I think this must be number five. Um, and we've also got The Exorcist as well. So huge franchises of coming back um, for this season too. Yeah, that's nice. I was reading a study the other day that there is there are health benefits in being afraid. So mm. kind of like the way that you're getting your heart rate up and you're um, kind of get, pushing your adrenaline using kind of <gasps> film and horror. There are health benefits to it, which I think. Wait, is is, is it is it is beneficial as me going to my spin class? Should I should I cancel spin and just watch horror? <laughs> yeah. Back off spin and just do three hours of horror a week, and then you're going to be the fittest you've ever been. <laughs> I don't think I need to do that, but it would be quite funny to see if it has an effect. I would be a shell of myself. I would like never leave the house ever again. <laughs> if I was just watching non-stop horror. Um, something I else I wanted to mention. I have a window. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't go outside. Um, one, of our, my, one of my team members, Faisal, has done a very good roundup of um, vi- uh, video games to play if you're into Halloween and into being scared. He's rounded up five to play in the run-up to Halloween. Um, and there's a really good variety. And what I really love that he's done is that with each game, he's given them like a score of like a gore score, an atmosphere score, and jump scares so that people really know what they're getting with each of these games, which I think... That's a great idea. Yeah, if you're someone that really likes gore, there are certain games to go to. But if you're someone who just kind of wants like the atmospheric scariness, there are better games. So some of the games he's included are a game called Dead Space and a game called Silent Hill 2. They both sound pretty gory and pretty atmospheric, but low on the jump scares. So that's kind of a few, some, something else to do if you want to like celebrate Halloween, but in a different way that doesn't involve dressing up and eating a lot of Reese's Pieces. <laughs> I remember the first time I played one of those like zombie games on the PlayStation when I was a kid and the um, the uh, controller like had a vibrator like shook when something jumped out at me and it genuinely <laughs> terrified me because I didn't know that that was going to happen. <laughs> There's a cinema in Dubai that does that. It's like a 4D cinema experience and I think I went and watched maybe Deadpool in it and that's not a scary film at all but that still was like when there was a bit of a jump and it would like vibrate your chair and blow out um, uh, like cold wind and even some mist at some stages when it was like raining. So it was like, that made it for, it was like, I've, that's the only film I've ever gone to watch in that cinema, but it was kind of made it like a bit of a theme park experience as well, which um, yeah. I kind of loved. I'm sure there's more of that here. Okay. So I think we're going to move on to our second thing on our running order today, which is, I feel like, this is like a moment. We're experiencing a moment. I'm so excited by this. I should be reading much, you know, I do read 
more interesting books or like, should I say more intellectual books? But this one I'm really excited about because this is Britney Spears memoir, The Woman in Me, is being released. It's out. It's out. It came out on Tuesday, I think. Yes. So all I've read is the reviews so far, but I've got it already on Audible. I've got it on my Kindle. I've started it, but I haven't. I'm, I, I'm not far enough in to be able to give a review. I am far enough in to tell you that I am gripped. <laughs> Brittany has got me. So this book... And I think, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, you've done yourself a disservice. This is a very interesting book. It may not be the most highbrow read of our year, but there is definitely a lot of interesting things that we're going to like get out of this book. I think One this is the- it. I think like on a, on a more kind of like going on a more anthropological level of like looking back at the early 2000s, like we're obviously reassessing that time now. We've moved forward um, in so many ways and we are reassessing that time. We were reassessing like, you know, pop culture in the early noughties and like what that actually meant. And I think this book is such a signifier of that time and like what she went through because it was all so curated um, pop culture. Yeah. I've I've got a confession. I've actually met Britney. <laughs> it was a long time ago. I had to take her. So I was a, a very young entertainment reporter and I had to take her down the lift and then lead her out of the building after an interview. And I, I remember standing in the lift with her and we left the building together and I have never in my entire life been so blinded by paparazzi obviously because I'm not famous and for a moment I realized why everybody wore sunglasses when they were leaving buildings at that time because the amount of paparazzi that were following her was insane and I think that you know I just I had this sudden moment of realizing like I was just like god man you have to go through this all the time it's so sad yeah. Yeah. Um, roughly what year was this? Was this like height of her fame? So it must have been 2013. Okay. So, I mean, she's never not been, she's basically been famous since 1999. Yeah. So she has, like, it's never eased up for her, the level of like interest in her life. Wow. Okay. That is really interesting. <laughs> so what I've been, like the book, there is, a good thing and a bad thing. When these books come out, the biggest revelations get shared, right? And there is the kind of, of course that's going to happen. Like we have people that read it ahead for reviews and we have people that speed read on the day things come out to be able to kind of share the biggest bombshells. I don't want to do too many of the biggest revelations because I think if people are going to read it, they want to read it, right? And not kind of have it have it from us. But like the kind of things she, by the sounds of it, gets pretty deep she goes into a lot of what happened she talks about the conservatorship a lot she talks about her family a lot mm. Justin Timberlake a lot yeah I mean the conservatorship it only ended two years ago is it two years ago now so this is really coming out at a time when I suppose Britney herself is rediscovering herself without those kind of restrictions that for years and years and years we all thought was kind of like a almost like an urban legend we didn't really believe that that was the case. And then it all came to light that it was the case, that she was actually being kind of controlled um, by her family and the music industry and all these other things. Yeah, exactly. Like the level of control in her life has been, like, 
very, from us on the outside, the, the fact that she was kind of in this kind of gilded cage, like she has like never wanted for anything in terms like she's had access to so much money and everything in that since her career started. However, the um, the way she, yeah, she has just kind of been locked away in this world where she's kind of not been out and about. It's, uh, yeah, it's a lot. But yeah, I think there's a Britney. lot to go through. Free Britney. Free Britney. Yeah. Free Britney. <laughs> she she says that her conservatorship turned her into a child robot. So she she was under his conservator her father's conservatorship for 13 years and she said I became a robot, not just a robot, a sort of child robot. I've been so infantilized I was losing pieces of what made me myself. 13 years went by with me feeling like a shadow of myself. I think back now on my father and his associates having control of my body and my money for that long, and it makes me sick. I did not deserve what my family did to me. I think that's so sad. Wow. So did she ever and actually realise who she was away from all of this? I wonder. Yeah, exactly. And it's very, she's like, it's amazing that she is now getting the chance to um, put everything into her own voice, which is so important. Yeah, it is. Although I do worry about her because I think it's like, you know, her Instagram posts, sometimes they are quite worrying. I think there's a lot going on there, but I'm hoping that this memoir definitely sheds like a bit of light on the backstory. Yeah. yeah. The origin I, story. I kind of, origin story and kind of how she got to where she is. Like, um, I've I, last year and the year before, I read a lot about um, Brittany and listened to quite a few podcasts about her and the way she was, the, the way celebrity we've both worked in entertainment news and have a lot of interest in entertainment news and the kind of different treatment of celebrities now to the way it was in like the late 90s and early 2000s while I don't think it has eased up any like I know we all joke that I love Taylor Swift but like the aggressive hounding and the fact that every single tiny Mm. facet of her life is like overanalyzed in the most extreme of ways like that hasn't changed from when Britney was younger. In fact, it's probably a little bit worse in like the advent of camera phones, the fact that every single mm-hmm. thing that a celebrity can do and share can be just plastered on the internet within three seconds of it happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully one thing that's good is like our kind of, our culturally our understanding of mental health issues and the kind of treatment of people who are experiencing mental health problems um, and the fact that it's no longer something that's kind of relished, which it at points of like the late 90s and early 2000s, it definitely oh, was. 100%. And that is- I think in some ways a lot of celebrities are now regaining control of the narrative by having social media as well. So it's kind of like, it's a double-edged sword, I think, people having their own phones and being able to like publicise themselves and having like an Instagram page which they can to have some sort of say over is definitely changing yeah. the game for celebrities um, but let's see yeah. okay so that's really exciting I'm excited to read it and so moving on now we're going to be speaking to Faisal El Hassan who is the director of 421.online which is bringing Palestinian cinema here to the UAE and Abu Dhabi hi Faisal Hello, Inas uh, and Farah. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. So the Palestinian cinema runs from the 26th of October to the 29th. Can you just give us a brief overview of what's in store? 
Um, we partnered with our friends uh, at Cinema Aqil and Real Palestine to showcase Palestinian films uh, and shed light on narratives of Palestinian resilience and everyday life uh, through different lenses uh, from Palestinian filmmakers uh, worldwide. Uh, we will be featuring uh, the film Zalam, uh, 200 Meters, uh, Foragers, and Between Heaven and Earth. Uh, all proceeds from the film program will go uh, to the Emirates Red Crescent campaign, Taraham for Gaza. Uh, we also accept in-kind donations that can be dropped off at our spaces uh, throughout the film days from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. Uh, uh, those interested in joining us uh, can register on our website and uh, complete a donation through the Emirates Red Crescent payment link. And as you mentioned, the program runs from the 26th to the 29th of October in our outdoor plaza. Uh, the screenings will start at 7 p.m. every evening, and there will be subtitles both in English and Arabic where applicable. That's incredible. I think it's, um, I mean, this has come at such a poignant time, but this is actually an annual event. Uh, we, uh, as uh, 4 to one we run a film program uh, on yearly basis uh, 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 throughout the year at different times uh, that showcases uh, uh, and, you know, platforms uh, Arab film uh, makers uh, and really uh, looks at a different range of topics and themes and voices from the region addressing various issues. Uh, and we are committed to maintaining uh, this work in the future. How many films are being featured at Palestinian Cinema Days? Uh, we have four films, uh, one screened uh, each night. Uh, the films presented are in the narrative and documentary genres. Uh, all are feature-length films uh, that have uh, won awards uh, and have been screened uh, at leading international film festivals. Uh, we also wanted to make sure that every film we present uh, was made by a Palestinian filmmaker and was uh, not just uh, filmed uh, and produced uh, in Palestine. Uh, in Alam, uh, for example, director Firas Khouri tells uh, uh, of uh, a coming-of-age story uh, that features two uh, Palestinian teenagers who fall in love amid living uh, under occupation uh, in 200 meters. Uh, Amin Naife and Mayaude, the directors, uh, present a moving story uh, of a husband and wife who are leading uh, their lives 200 meters apart, divided by the separation wall. Uh, the film takes us on a, a tough uh, journey uh, as they navigate uh, uh, trying to keep uh, their family together uh, while living on two sides of the wall. Uh, Foragers uh, by Jumana Manna is an experimental documentary film that uh, sheds light on the impact of Israeli uh, nature protection laws that prevent Palestinians from foraging uh, uh, native plants. Uh, the film presents a nuanced perspective uh, of the relationships around Palestinian culture, identity, and agriculture. Uh, and finally, uh, Between Heaven and Earth by Najwa Najjar uh, presents a really interesting perspective uh, of everyday life under occupation. Uh, in the film, uh, we are introduced to a young couple uh, that simply want to get a divorce, uh, but face um, various difficulties as they navigate uh, checkpoints and uh, limited access and other issues. I think it's so interesting and it's so timely to be talking about as well about the creativity which comes out of Palestine. I mean, I think there's so much wealth in the creativity and it's so good to be raising awareness of that creativity. I know Farah and I have spoken about it before, about like LID, which we both 
really enjoyed, which was a sci-fi documentary which came from a Palestinian-Israeli cinema. So tell me a little bit how important this event is for raising that awareness. Look, um, film and the arts in general are incredibly powerful tools that invite us to collectively uh, reflect uh, on and participate in dialogue on important issues. They also give us uh, the space to be truly meditative, um, uh, giving us a chance to connect uh, with human experience, emotion, and struggle. I think uh, this is especially uh, critical when we are considering the experiences of disenfranchised communities. Uh, the arts allow us to consider other historical contexts and environments, uh, which help us to really see uh, other communities and cultures, uh, not just uh, other, but as humans uh, with uh, shared universal experiences. And can you give an overview of the Palestinian cinema? Are there any quirks or anything different which happens in Palestinian cinema, which maybe doesn't come across from other Middle Eastern countries? For a long time, Palestinian cinema has focused on themes of resistance and belonging. Uh, filmmaking has been a vehicle for Palestinians to uh, make visible their history and struggle. Also, it highlights uh, the experiences of Palestinians in the diaspora, which uh, we now know are over 7 million worldwide who have been living in exile for 70 plus years. Um, I wouldn't say there is a particular quirk, uh, but uh, many researchers and academics who have written about uh, the history of Palestinian cinema agree that there is an element of the archival, I would say, an approach that is more documentary in style that, a, that I think is very specific to Palestinian film. Uh, although, of course, this doesn't apply to every film uh, produced. Uh, archival documentation, like newspaper clippings, uh, family photographs, certificates, marriage licenses, and so on, are the foundation of Palestinian memory. They are used to represent a collective identity which has been experiencing the threat of extinction uh, since 1948. I think uh, this was born out of uh, the necessity to make the Palestinian struggle visible, which has been very often silenced or uh, made hidden. What I can uh, also set, uh, say that it, set, it sets it apart from other uh, cinematic traditions across the region is that it really reimagines the documentary genre by crossing it with uh, magical realism. Um, contemporary Palestinian cinema also takes on a more surreal aesthetic, let's say. Uh, the filmmakers kind of uh, weave together historical context uh, with absurd dreamlike storytelling. Uh, I think filmmakers often combine these um, different ways to portray the complexities uh, of the people's experiences, both uh, within the Palestinian territories and in the diaspora. If I was to go just slightly off of um, what we have written down, and I was to ask you which one is, which of the films is a not to be missed, what would you say? I think... Uh, it's very difficult to single out one of them. I am sure if you come and join us for the uh, four film screenings, you would see that each one presents a really important perspective and a story. Uh, but if I had to uh, deep dive into one film, let's say, I am 
particularly interested in stories of land and agriculture. Um, and Foragers by Jumana Manna uh, sheds light on agriculture policies in the occupied territories. Uh, the film mixes documentary-style scenes with the director's family members and interviews with strangers uh, and mixes that with reenactments of real-life uh, events to reveal the impact of these uh, policies that uh, were started uh, back in the year 2000 by the Israeli government. Uh, these policies uh, prevent Palestinians from foraging uh, wild crops and plants like akub and zatar, uh, which we find out uh, during the film are central to Palestinian heritage. Uh, these plants have been forged uh, for generations uh, by Palestinian families, uh, were passed down, becoming really integral uh, to Palestinian culture and food. Um, the film presents a really multi-layered picture of how these policies have alienated Palestinians from their land and the negative impact on Palestinian collective well-being. It contrasts modern conservative efforts with indigenous Palestinian knowledge around food and agriculture. It's a really fascinating film and I really invite everyone to come and see it. Um, so we're interested to know what urged you to launch Palestinian Cinema Days and kind of if you could talk to us a little bit about that at the moment. Well, uh, Farah, it goes without saying that we're really devastated by the ongoing crisis in Gaza and the horrifying footage that we're seeing uh, on our screens. As a cultural institution that values artistic practice as a means for social inquiry and transformation, we believe it's really crucial to amplify Palestinian voices at the moment. Uh, art and film are important platforms for expression, representation, and education, empowering individuals um, and our community to foster understanding and open dialogue. Um, film especially is an intimate medium that allows us to empathize deeply with the characters that we see on our screens. It's important for us to remind the world that Palestinians are people, not just numbers in logbooks or Instagram posts. Every day over the past two weeks uh, on the news, we hear statistics of how many people died, uh, the harrowing devastation Palestinians are experiencing. Uh, we get reports on how many people are uh, taking shelter in schools, uh, mosques and churches and how many are in the morgue. Uh, but we forget that Palestinians are people. They come from diverse walks of life uh, they, uh, with dreams, aspirations, personal experiences and stories. Uh, they have hobbies, likes, dislikes. They fall in love. Uh, they have high school crushes. They get married and get divorced. They start families. They struggle with daily life. They lead full lives that aren't captured in these numbers and data. We also have to remember that not only uh, do they uh, are they people with complexities and full life experiences, but they also do that while living under occupation in the West Bank and a siege in Gaza. Um, while the, so, through showing uh, uh, showcasing these films, uh, we hope to present narratives that challenge the current pictures that we're seeing uh, about Palestinians in the mainstream media and, and on social media and elsewhere. You know. I think that's such a powerful answer, Faisal. And I think it's something that I, I think all journalists at the moment, especially here at The National, we're really trying to make sure that people don't just become numbers. Um, and I think that's something that will resonate with everybody here. Exactly. They're, they're humans. They're not numbers. And we just need to keep reminding ourselves and reminding the people around us that, you know, this is the reality. 
At the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that all the proceeds from the event are going to the Emirates Red Crescent Authorities campaign. What can you tell us about the efforts from the Emirates Red Crescent? Well, uh, the proceeds go to the uh, Emirates Red Crescent. And I really want to highlight that the UAE leadership has always been uh, at the forefront of humanitarian response worldwide. Uh, the UAE has a long history of providing humanitarian aid, not just to Gaza uh, and to the West Bank, which have been going on for many years now, uh, but to every corner of the world where communities needed assistance and humanitarian uh, relief. I'm also uh, really proud to be part of a community here in the UAE where nationals and residents alike have a contagious generous spirit. Uh, the past weekend, uh, the 421 team and I volunteered at the Emirates Red Crescent packing facility at ADMIC. And it was really amazing to see volunteers from every nationality and age group there. I believe 10,000 people volunteered just this past weekend and 25,000 relief packages were prepared. It was an incredible effort. It's also Deeply encouraging to see the arts and culture sector mobilizing so quickly in response to the uh, devastating events in Gaza. Our colleagues at Al Sarkal Avenue, at Art Dubai, at Dubai Design Week have all been uh, raising funds and collecting donations for the for the campaign. I really encourage uh, everyone in Abu Dhabi who is able to join us for, uh, for the Palestinian Cinema Days to make an in-kind donation for the campaign. Uh, no donation is too small. You can find all the details on our website or on the Red Crescent uh, website. I think that's a really important message as well, is that during these times, like we all should be coming together. And even if you're not going to see a film, please do head down there and go and give a donation to help the efforts in Gaza. Thank you so much, Faisal, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, I hope to see you in better days. And here we are joined in the studio, sorry Farah, with our man about town. Hi, hello here and hello in America. Hi Farah. Yes, hi man, hi. So far away, but able to chat about good things when we're all, we're all still, we're all here connected. (laughs) Thank God for a good internet connection. I know, it's like changed our lives. Yeah. For the better, for for the the better. better. (laughs) Otherwise we wouldn't be able to do this. Nope. So another week. Uh, another lot of things have changed mm-hmm. so significantly, um, obviously due to the ongoing situation. So we're here to talk about well, not what's going on, but maybe what's not going on so much. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of, as most people know, events uh, in the UAE have been either cancelled or postponed. So those include uh, the Culture Summit, which was supposed to happen this week, concerts like from Amr Diab, from Khaled, from Macklemore, KISS. Uh, and some f- film festivals as well that were happening um, in the region, like the Alguna Film Festival and the Cairo Film Festival as well. So it's uh, kind of an interesting space to be in, in terms of what people can do uh, in the arts and culture space. I mean, there's still so many galleries that are open and have continuous shows, uh, like in the Louvre or the Tihad Museum. The calligraphy Biennale is still happening uh, in, in Dubai. So, um, but... If we pivot a little bit, there's other things that people can engage in culturally, which is something that I'm super passionate about, if anybody knows me well, which is books. Um, There are so many interesting, important, relevant books um, that delve into this topic in in so many diverse ways. And like, I know that, you know, um, for the social media savvy generation, we're sort of used to seeing like, you know, a 30 second clip about this particular issue or topic. 
Um, but I'm of the belief that books can really take you, they're a vehicle to really immerse you in, in particular topics. And um, in the arts and culture uh, section in the National, we write a lot about books. And there's three really great articles that I think um, delve into different books about the region. So I'm going to tell you guys about the three articles and I'm going to highlight one or two books. Excited. I'm Exciting. waiting. Yeah. Uh, so the first uh, uh, story is, uh, I think it's 12 books about um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, which is on our site now. And one book I really want to highlight is uh, a book called The Question of Palestine by Edward Said. Now, for those of you who don't know, Edward Said is a well-known American-Palestinian literary critic and political activist. He's um, really interesting. And the book that he's written, uh, what he wrote, um, goes into the conflict um, and really tells you not only about the context, but looks at it from the Western perspective as well. Mm. And Edward Said is really, really great at that. He wrote this other book called The Orientalist. I mean, it's... Orientalism, sorry. Yeah, yeah, Orientalism was like, is it on everybody's bookshelf exactly. at university? It's, he's so clever at, not clever, but he's so good at taking these really complex issues, particularly pertaining to the Middle East, and making you think about them from a Western perspective and how they exist in the West. So... I think that's a really important, good book to have. And, and most of his books are available on Audible as well for those people who don't want to sit there and hold a book and read. <laughs> that's me. Hand yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. Hand up. I'm always downloading things on Audible. <laughs> I mean, we are on a podcast right now. So, yeah. Nonfiction on Audible is so good. That's, I think, where it really comes through. And we forget that how important audio listening to stories sometimes are. Sometimes it's better than, than reading, reading books. Um, another... Uh, article that we wrote is uh, 12 contemporary Arab novels um, that you should read. And they're by different Arab authors from across the region who have written about the Arab experience, whether it's in the Middle East or in, in diaspora. And one of those books I want to highlight is called The Mother of Strangers. It's by a Palestinian author called Saad Amri. She's an author and architect. And she wrote this it's a very short novel, and it's it's based on on real people, uh, and it's homage to her father and his hometown of Jaffa. It's kind of like a folk tale or fairy tale that's a little bit dark, and it's about um, a, a young mechanic, very talented mechanic, and his love for this peasant girl that he wants to marry, and how their life sort of shifts um, when Palestinian families become displaced. And she's really great about write. She's really great at writing about this big topics in a very simple, accessible way. And I don't know about you guys, but I love accessible stories that are like easy to digest. So that's a great one for fiction. You had me at like fairy tale. Yeah, like, <laughs> like anything that's a bit Neil Gaiman, a bit like out of this world fantasy. I'm there. I mean, it's not fully fantasy, but it it reads like that. She describes it in a kind of like a, a fantasy way. Um, the other article that we have on our website um, is one of the favorite ones that I worked on, which is 19 graphic novels uh, set in the Middle East. Uh, so for those people who don't, can't sit there and just read page after page of words, sometimes, you know, beautiful illustrations really help. And there's one really great graphic novel in the list that I want to highlight. It's called Palestine. It's by Joe Sacco. I think that's how you pronounce his surname. And this is a really innovative graphic novel. It was written in the early 90s, I think 1996. And um, Joe was is a journalist and he wrote a graphic novel. He's considered the first comic artist journalist, which oh, is cool. really interesting. Uh, so he wrote um, this graphic novel based on hundreds of interviews that he did while he was at the West Bank in Gaza. 
And so the book is a compilation of images and dialogues that really represent different people's voices and their perspectives um, in that region. So it's a really interesting way to um, sort of immerse yourself in what's happening in, in a more of a graphic way. Okay. And then there's the last one I saw on the list. It's, this is actually a story um, that you're going to mention, which I commissioned, which I was really proud of. Oh, yeah. The um, <laughs> Iraqi uh, ball uh, ballet teacher. Yeah. So moving away from um, books for a second, there's a really um, interesting piece at the moment on the National and it's all about a ballerina in Baghdad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so it is uh, Lesna Salam, who is a dancer in Baghdad, and she graduated from a really prestigious uh, dance and music school in, in, in Iraq, in Baghdad. And um, she has decided that she wants to take her passion of ballet to the younger generation. And so she has opened an academy, uh, a small dance academy, to teach young people uh, from the ages of 5 up to 18 about the art of ballet. Um, which is unfortunately not that well um, known in Iraq. Uh, so she has been working really hard and working with people and doing a lot of stuff online on Instagram. You should follow them on Iraq.Ballet um, to promote the art form and to show the world that people in Iraq are interested in ballet. Young girls and young boys are interested in dancing in ballet. So it's a really wonderful story. And it's a great video we have as well online, um, her talking about her passion for it. Yeah, we've got more and more coming out of um, Baghdad at the moment. I know that you have a special, keen interest in the, the uh, ongoing... Yeah, for those uh, of you who don't know, I'm, I'm Iraqi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, and I'm also like, really passionate about hearing, like, you know, the other side of Iraq. Like, mm. I grew up in the UK and there was always one side of Iraq that was mentioned. Mm. So, now that I'm here, I want to hear the other side. Yeah. So, uh, we're going to be doing some more about the art and the kind of expansion of the art industry in Baghdad yeah. which we're going to definitely do a school trip we'll go we'll yeah go that's there. exciting yeah. yeah I haven't been back since I was eight so yeah let's go yeah let's go <laughs> <laughs> right that's it for today thank you for listening and we promise to get you lots of interesting stories for next week and if you like this episode please follow and subscribe on your favourite podcasting app and don't forget to tell all your friends and family about it see you next week bye